Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to All Stats, aren't we? A podcast in which Leeds fans cast the combined eye over goings on at Alan Dredd, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the Lewis Dunk of the podcast, doing a bit of yoga in a crowded box. And today I'm joined by the Pascal Strout back post header of the podcast, Darren Driver. Yeet! And finally, <laughs> the glory supporter of the podcast. He's only Leeds when we're winning. It's Tom Alderson. Tom, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, but I'm not. I'm not happy about being called the glorious supporter of all stats, aren't we? I'm, I'm have to when when we've got a break in the summer. I'm gonna have to whip out those stats I've done for each con, for each podcast person <laughs> again, just to see who's who's really the glorious supporter. But yeah, I'm good. Actually, it's actually nice to come on one of these and like feel positive. It feels like a long time since I've done that, and also st- Stockport won the league as well yesterday. So I actually had a nice day of football for a change. It doesn't seem to happen very often at the moment. Yeah, the more cynical men than myself might say that you should start a Stockport podcast the amount of time you're dedicating to them over Leeds these days. <laughs> I'm not that cynical, man. Speaking of cynical men, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Darren Driver, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I'd just like to point out one point of order in your um, introductions there. So you did say that Tom's only leads when we're winning. But in yes. fact, we did not win yesterday. Um, and... You know, so maybe maybe he's only leads when we're drawing, when we're drawing or losing, which is usually when when Tom gets to come on and, and talk about about leads uh, with me. But I'm very well, John. John, how are you, buddy? Yeah, good. I'm only leads when we're one point one points per game uh, as a <laughs> as a general rule. Uh, but I won't get into that now. I'm definitely not wound up by tweeting. You should never tweet, John. Yeah, first Ever. rule of Twitter: don't Ever. tweet. Yeah, I I put out a tongue in tw- a tongue in tweet. A tongue in tweet cheek um, this afternoon, just taking the piss a little bit out of people who are using points per game to determine who was better between Marcelo Bielsa and Jesse Marsh. Um, and as Twitter is wont to do, and is fully entitled to do, I should say, there was a lot of people who took that at face value. And so um, I've managed to avoid going too much into into the dregs of Twitter, but... These people who are defending Marsh on the basis of points per game, don't they watch the game? Football's not played on spreadsheets, is it? They should actually just watch <laughs> exactly. the game, I think. These stats virgins, <laughs> I, 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 just, I can't deal with them, Darren. Neither can I, John, which, is, which makes this activity that I do very regularly quite odd. <laughs> anyway, for those people who do listen who are concerned about points per game, which I stress I am not interested in, I looked at the expected points. I'm going to say now something that makes it very clear that I am concerned about points per game, but I went on Understat's expected points table and had a look at the comparisons between uh, Marcelo Bielsa and Jesse Marsh. And actually, according to expected points, which is based on Monte Carlo simulations of the of the chances created in a game uh, and works out actually the points that probably should have been uh, appointed to each manager, Marcelo Bielsa is in fact slightly ahead. So needless to say, points per game after an 11-game period, really not a good sample size. So time to calm down on the points per game. Anyway, we're not here to talk about points per game. We are here to talk about the 1-1 draw with Brighton at Elland Road. It was a game which contained a lot of chances, according to the expected goals. So Statsbomb had Leeds at 2.0 and Brighton at 2.2. 
There were some interesting chances in there, particularly the uh, Joe Gelhart beaning of Liam Cooper in the face very early on, uh, but we will get on to that. In terms of the setup of the game, we barely had any senior players available for selection, so the lineup ahead of the game seemed to be basically fit in anyone where they can fit. Uh, Robin Cock was in for Luke Ayling at right back again, and Junior Furpo played at left back, and then we saw Joe Gelhart starting up front in the absence of Dan James, but beyond that, it was as expected. Although in the first half, it did feel as though we had a little bit of a formation change. Felt as though Phillips was maybe sitting a little bit more centrally and pivoty, uh, and Mateus Click was pushing up to the right hand side with Jack Harrison being a little bit narrow on the left. We can talk about the second half later on, but uh, it did seem to change up a little bit in the second half. But the first half was pretty much all Brighton, but for a very early chance that I mentioned where Joe Gelhart smacked the ball into Liam Cooper's face from a corner. Uh, I felt like Brighton took us apart through our left-back area a number of times, and it looked like a goal was inevitable in the first 30 minutes of the game. And when it did come, actually, Yves Basuma was able to carry the ball deep into the Leeds half from his own well, the edge of his own penalty area and play in Danny Welbeck, who turned Diego Llorente inside out before chipping the onrushing Melier. In the second half, Leeds refused to play out of the back as they had done in the first half, and it worked much better for us on my viewing. We did generate more chances as the game wore on, and the best of those, according to the Statsbomb expected goals, was the Rafinha chance, which um, Rodrigo curled through for him. Um, there was obviously the Mateus Click chance as well in the in the penalty area, but in the final stretch of the game, it did feel like Brighton were resting back control. Uh, but then obviously the ball fell to the feet of Joe Gelhart in the box, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that was one-one and a much-needed point in the relegation battle that we're currently in. So that's the game summary. Let's move on to the interrogation. Uh, so the interrogation is a section where I ask five questions to the guys and we try to get to the bottom of what happened on the pitch. So with that in mind, question one, we'll start with Darren as always. Feels like a difficult game to analyse really. Both teams generated a lot of good chances and yet on balance a draw feels about right. Yeah, I'd say that's that's probably probably fair. I think that the way that, that both teams approached the game was as different as you'd expect and, and, um, and, and you know, Brighton really came and you know tried to try to control the game tried to control possession and for for big stretches of the game particularly in the first half were able to do that and put us under really significant pressure um but but there were, I, fe- I felt like we always had threat um going the other way and not through any great guile or or, or nouse but but there was definitely threat in transition um going the other way and and um I think that what we tried to do was to try and make the game as transitional and open in transition as we possibly could because we felt that would benefit us and what Brighton were trying to do was to control the game to stop us from transitioning. So from that point of view, I felt it was quite an interesting tactical battle really and, and that that it it felt to me on the balance of play when you take away the when you take away the stress of watching the live run through, that that overall it was it was a fair result and that both teams came out of it probably with arguments that they could and should have won the game um and and I think both managers probably said that um but but the 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 draw was the fair result I was really pleased to see us finally have some threat after a number of games you know five or six games on the trot where we really didn't have any any attacking threat going forward and although there were moments when we wasted good possession uh, good good positions in advanced areas of the pitch I felt like we also did have have it within us to make some chances with you know I thought uh, Rodrigo and and Rafinha and Harrison and and Gelhart all shone in moments and 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 our, our game really is about trying to create chaotic enough conditions that we can have moments from those players so on on the balance of play although it's not the sort of football I, I hasten to add that I would like to see for any sustained period of time in a one-off game I think it's it it did enough to to get us a point a, 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 a probably a deserved and much needed point yeah Tom you were at the game so what did you make of it it was sort of difficult what I can't really sort of get out of my head is that Brighton, Brighton could have probably been out of sight 35 minutes in quite easily they had a lot of chances and not necessarily like they, they didn't necessarily create a big, well, they did early on create a lot of chances for shots, but there was a lot of times when they got into like areas where they were sort of, they were even, um, had even number of players against our defenders and they kind of just didn't do anything with it. And I think you put in the, uh, in our group chat last night, John, the expected threat 
numbers or like the, the timeline of it as well. And like Brighton were well ahead until 35 minutes. And then we had that run of corners and click it in the post before half time where it came, it came back and sort of leveled up a bit. And then we had the, the better of the second half. So whilst we did have to ride our luck a bit to get to that point where we can say we did deserve a point, then it could have quite easily gone the other way. And that's why I find it difficult to analyse. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you. I, I was saying to you before, it's um, it was one of those few games that I've had this season where on the rewatch, I've actually thought we were probably slightly worse than I thought when I watched us live. Usually it's the other way around. I usually watch and think, oh, that wasn't good. And then go back and I think, oh, you know, there's maybe a little bit more to it than, than I thought. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of structured possession, there was, there was nothing. And as Darren says, like, that's not really the point. We are, we aren't trying to get structured possession, but if it didn't even feel as though we were necessarily generating chances through, through a sort of careful counter press it felt as though we were just clonking the ball long and as the game went on we were clonking the ball longer and longer and uh, and and yeah you know we we were just lucky that we got that decent chance right at the end uh, and and Pascal Strat put it away but in terms of what you're saying Tom I, I did I do agree I think that we were quite lucky that Brighton didn't actually pull off any of their counter-attacks because it felt as though in the second half they had a few chances where there was even chances where they had overloads so they'd have five on four or four on three at the back and it felt to me like they didn't move the ball quick enough um, laterally across the pitch I feel as though we're so susceptible to that Um, if players hold on to the ball then we'll eventually get a a counter-press working but if they move the ball quickly, then then we're very, very vulnerable. And I thought we were lucky that Brighton didn't do that very well, particularly in the second half. I thought they did it really well in the first half. I thought that their, their ability to move the ball laterally was one of the things that gave them um, a lot of advantage in the first half. And I agree that in the second half, they wasted a lot of opportunities to do that. And also lateral running. So like their, their forward players made that run between in front of one of our centre-backs and behind the other, that diagonal run countless times in the first half. And it caused us a lot of problems, but they didn't really do it in the second half. So I thought it was quite an interesting difference. Well, let's move on and talk about what changed between the first and second half. So we'll come to you first on that, Tom, because there was clearly a big difference between the first and second half. Um, although, yeah, I, I think people sort of thought that we dominated the second half and in a way that I actually don't necessarily agree with. But we can talk about that um, as we go. So what's your take on the change between the first and the second half? Yeah, I don't think a lot changed first and second half. I think the difference was, I think you t- uh, touched on this in the sort of the, the, the um, going back over the game. Is that we just stopped playing out from the back and we started poofing it long almost because we we couldn't really get into their attacking third and we did that by hitting the ball long um just and it kind of allowed us to be a bit more transitional then because when it broke down it gave out players like Rodrigo who were really struggling in the first half chances to sort of get into those situations where he is really effective and can show what a good player he is and then so yeah I think as well like Brighton. They they did have those moments as well, but because they were, they were nearer their nearer their own goal, it meant that we weren't quite as they weren't quite as threatening. Like they still did have moments, but it just didn't feel like we, the ball was nearer their their goal, goal. So I just it didn't feel like as worrying. It felt like it was easy for us to create chances. Yeah, I think a lot of that stuff is just to do with taking teams out of their comfort zone. Like in the first half, Brighton were able to break our press really easy um, and and get into sort of structured attacking. Um, situations whereas in the second half they were in this situation where you know they they were dropping a little bit deeper they weren't able to structure themselves as well because they weren't pressing high because we weren't playing out from the back uh, and it it meant that in those situations where they had counter attacks it just felt that they were almost surprised by how much space they had and they just didn't make the most of it um so yeah, I suppose in that sense, the the game plan, if there, if you can say that there was one, uh, worked. But Darren, what's your thoughts on the switch between the first and second half? Yeah, um, I think it was it was kind of a, like a redoubling of the effort ball that we've that we've played through. The, I think I think the players really like ran themselves to death in the second half, and I think I think that was part of it. I think I think in terms of the way that we used the ball, absolutely, we we were looking to go longer and hit the channels, and because because. Brighton had kind of structured their, like you said, structured their their press and their counter press, and and, and they actually counter press really effectively in the first half, um, because we were suddenly like just 
just hoying the ball into 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 the areas where um, Rafinha, Rafinha and Rodrigo, Rodrigo were likely to be, it meant that they, like you say, they were out of structure, so we could force it into be a more transitional game than than they wanted it to be. And I think we gambled that that in a transitional gunfight, we'd probably be able to to um, to come out of that either on top or at least get back in the game, um, which is quite an interesting distinction to make when you think that their goal. Uh, in the first half, entirely came from a transitional moment. So I think I think it's quite it's a real gamble to say actually we're gonna we're gonna beat you in a transitional war. Um, so and and you know I think it, there were times when it looked like we were pressing more effectively in the second half, but I think it was just more to do with the fact that the way that we were using the ball was unsettling unsettling Brighton and not not allowing them to kind of have the structure in place for them to use the ball as as wisely as they had in the first half. Um, other than that, again, I don't really think there was a tremendous amount of difference. We, I think that, that going longer with the ball definitely played to our advantage and, and meant that we didn't look as poor in possession as we did in the first half because we weren't trying to keep it. Yeah, and I'm sort of with Tom. I think there's like a few moments, particularly that Danny Welbeck missed header, where you just sort of think, well, they've put, they'll put the, the game to bed at this point and it didn't happen and so the the plan sort of worked out we stayed in the game long enough to, to actually take our chance. So um, let's move on. Question three. Um, actually, no. I've got um, I've got a follow up question here that that I will direct to you, Darren. So, a question from Krombopoulos Matthew, who says, "Do you think the second half was just a case of players unilaterally deciding to play a sort of Bielsa ball light, at least in terms of width, or can Marsh take any credit for the shift in setup?" Uh, Harrison definitely seemed wider and gave Junior Firpo better defensive cover in the second half. So, thoughts on that? I wouldn't like to speculate whether it was uni- whether it was unilateral or whether whether Marsh gave it as an instruction, but it was definitely happening. But it was happening in the first half too. There were definitely moments in the first half when, particularly, Click was trying to drag the ball out wide and drag his teammates out there with him to try and overload Brighton because I think Brighton had decent cover in central areas. So it makes sense that if the space is out wide and your team's used to playing out wide, that on the pitch the players are going to make that decision to try and try and take advantage in that area. Now, in terms of like stoking the Bielsa style versus Marsh style fires, I'm not particularly interested in in doing that. Um, if, if Marsh did say to the players go play in the wide areas in the second half and that's to his credit because he's recognised something in the game that needed to be different if the players have done it it's to their credit um, but I, I don't think we played Bielsa style structures particularly in the second half we just used the white, the width of the pitch a little bit more effectively it wasn't it wasn't like we were doing the kind of rotations and the clever movement and the smart runs and the third man runs and all the rest of that sort of stuff that we saw under Bielsa's best bits it's just that we simply put the ball into the wider areas in the pitch and let let the players go at it in those areas it felt quite off the cuff to me Again, I, I'm with you. I don't really like to speculate when it comes to talking about tactics. All we can say is what we saw. Uh, but it was interesting that Jesse Marsh came out after the game and said that made some comments about how the players didn't believe. Uh, made it sound like at half time the players were, were sort of not expecting to be able to get back in the game. Um, and I do wonder, you know, that's it, it does seem sort of coded for me in some in some senses as to what that actually means because it it, it feels to me that from what I saw from the game itself that the the players maybe changed the tactics or, or, or suggested that they would prefer the tactics to be changed um, as a result of that. But again, that is speculation. Um, and yeah, as, as we say, I think the big change for me simply going long rather than trying to build up from the back means that we didn't lose possession like we did in the first half all the time to Brighton's pressing. And um, it meant that when... Yeah, it meant that we just sort of were looking for second balls. We were kicking the ball long, looking to try and win the ball back after it it was either headed back off uh, one of the Brighton centre-backs or whatever. Um, and, and that obviously worked a lot better. It was sort of a very territorial game in the second half and it, it sort of took the pressure off us a little bit. Right, so question three, which is another listener question. So I'll go to Tom on this one. This is from James. He said, did it benefit us? not having that much of a game plan. Potter is tactically adept and likes to control games. So by making the game scrappy, did we actually give ourselves more of a chance? So Darren's already touched on this, but uh, yeah, what's your thoughts on this, Tom? Uh, Yeah, I actually joked about this during the week that (laughs) having no tactics might be a bit of an advantage here. Um, But yeah, I think there there is probably some truth to it because we've seen Potter in the past, like the the way he's... um, moved Rafinha sort of away from dangerous areas in the first game of this season and he, he kind of did a bit of a number on us in the, the home fixture last year. Um, so we're, we're when he's not expecting, we're not knowing what to expect because 
not none of us really know what to expect. Then I think it there, there was there is some truth in it. Um, and it's like we say when we've been said before, like the hit, hitting the ball long in the second half, it kind of just took Brighton out of their comfort zone, and they didn't. Whilst they they weren't like we weren't battering them, it just it gave them something different that they weren't expecting, and they didn't really know how to completely react to it. So I, th- I think yeah, like the, the I think I would agree with James on that um, to an extent. I wouldn't say it's completely true, but there are elements of it. Well, let's move on. Question four, so Darren, it's been a while since we talked about the play style. Do you think we saw more of what Jesse Marsh wanted to see uh, from Leeds in that game? I think maybe so. I think we saw more more occasions in which the players in pressing moments were hunting in packs and kind of going at it together, and that felt that felt a little bit more like what I'd expect to see. Um, I think we, I think he probably does want to see the kind of direct play that we did in the second half. Um, so maybe the, there is something in that. Um, but probably would want it to be more central than it was in that game. And less aerial, probably. As less well, aerial, just... yeah, yeah. So he'd want it to be more. And, there, you know, there were moments when we found found Rodrigo in advanced areas and not particularly wide, sort of in a half space along the ground. And, and I think that's probably the sort of thing that we're looking for. Um, but, yeah, overall, I mean, I, <laughs> it is really difficult to say, isn't it? Because I, I don't think he would want to see us been as profligate as we were... <laughs> Sorry, as as open to to chances as we were in the first half, we gave up a lot of a lot of chances in kind of zonal. You know, we were trying to mark zonally, but players were just running off us and causing chaos. Um, I don't think he would want to see that. I don't think he'd want to see us kind of getting penned into areas and bright because Brighton's press funneled us into all sorts of really difficult areas in the first half and in ways that we just couldn't get out of. So I don't think he'd want to see that. Um, I think the second half probably looks a little bit more like something that he would want to see, but still think it's more the situation and the circumstances that are leading to the to the to the style of play rather than any uh, deliberate tactical decisions. I, I just don't think he's that interested on, in the on-ball stuff at the moment. I think it's more about okay, well we're we're going we're gonna to go along and we're going to try and get our players, our better players, on the ball in dangerous areas, and that's probably about as far as it goes. He's probably more interested right now in not shipping loads of goals and shipping loads of chances. Um, so I think I think there's, you know, I. <laughs> I still struggled with it yesterday because I don't. I still don't think it was a good performance, and I, d- I still don't think it was good or enjoyable football. I'm obviously very pleased that we came away with the point and pleased that we started to make some chances finally. But I still think this is a long way from what anyone would consider to be something that they would want to see over a over a season or more. It's so hard, isn't it? Because at the moment, it just feels as though we're in this sort of liminal space where everything is results oriented. So if we'd have lost yesterday, which we easily could have done then this podcast would be very different. And the the problem is, is that you start trying to assign in, intention to everything, right? So when we say something like, oh, do we think that Jesse Marsh would be happier with the second half than the first half in terms of his style, then we're always going to say, yeah, because we looked less bad in the second half than we did in the first half. And it's, it's really hard to actually nail down what is intentional and what isn't. And I think the problem is always going to be, and this is why, this is why the endless debates about Bielsa versus Marsh are going to rumble on because it, it will come down to whether or not we stay up or not. And if it's, if we stay up, then Jesse Marsh will be sort of anointed as, as a decent gamble by the board. And if we go down, then he won't. When the difference between those two scenarios could be anything like as simple as like a silly penalty decision or, or an own goal or something like that. So I, I find it really difficult at the moment to, to sort of assess what is and isn't him and what is and isn't good or bad because so much of it just comes down to well we got a point and that takes us out of the relegation zone so it's a job well done but I I do think that part of the issue here is we have to look to the future right um we'll talk about that a little bit more I think in the in the next question so I won't get into it into it now but there's a lot of people just sort of seeming to act as though well if we if we end up staying in the in the in the Premier League then it's the right decision um and yeah, it's it's just hard to be able to really assess that because we don't know what would have happened if we'd have appointed anyone. We don't know what would have happened if we'd have appointed Kep Bielsa in charge. The big question for me is, this is a massive transfer window coming up for us. And if we end up with Jesse Marsh leaving after six months or so, after shelling a huge amount of money, because we're going to have a lot of outlays and inlays this this window, then it's it's a really tricky assessment to make of whether or not it's been a good appointment and so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment um yeah Tom do you have any thoughts on on this whole play style thing 
I'm guessing here, but you you never know. I'm not saying this is true, but you never know whether what they did in the first half yesterday was what Marsh wanted, and then the second half was what the players wanted, and in which case, like it's kind of the opposite of what you said. Like Marsh might say he's he's more he's happier with the second half, and that's why he wanted to play, but maybe that wasn't the case, and we we have no idea, and that's the that's the problem. So I've I don't know. Like you, you, when you look at what Marsh has done at his previous clubs, like we're not seeing we are seeing aspects of it, but like we're not seeing a lot of it. So I, I, if if I was him and he was, if that was my style of football, from what I'm seeing right now, I'm probably not very happy with it. But yeah, it's like you say, we're in this weird place where it only matters about results to most people and well, us at the moment to an extent. Mm, I think one of the reasons why we're not sure whether this is working for Marsh or not is because he very rarely talks about the football in in his post or pre game interviews. It's all about mentality, attitude, effort. He never talks about like the tactical plans in any detail like Bielsa would would talk about his pressing and he would talking about the way that we used the ball Marsh never or very very rarely does that and certainly not in any detail so I think that does make it a bit harder to assess where he is in terms of what he thinks about things another thing to say as well is that actually and there's been a few games now where I've looked at it and been like actually it feels as though that was what I would expect Jesse Marsh football to look like first one is the Leicester City game where I think in the first half we had, there was actually elements of what looked quite good um, and and looked like what Jesse Marsh wanted. But in the second half, that changed very drastically. And it's, it seems to me like there's a few games like that where we start off and try and do Jesse Marsh things in the first half. And in the second half, it sort of breaks down a lot more. Uh, felt like that to me, the game against Brighton as well. So it, it's, it's tricky because I think people assess the game yesterday in terms of, well, we weren't quite so open in the second half and we generated some chances and we scored the goal, obviously, in the second half. Whereas actually, I thought there was elements of Jesse Marsh football that were much more apparent in the first half. And the issue is, is that they're not, it's not coming off yet. Um, and so the, I think there's a, the huge problem is, is that, you know, that these, like, however we want to put it, these players aren't suited for playing the sort of football that Jesse Marsh wants. And, the only way that we're staying up is by playing some kind of bastardised form of whatever it is that the players are cobbling together in the second half of games. Um, there's been a lot of games this season where we've just sort of forced goals out of not a lot and um, not through any sort of like sensible structured football. And obviously that's fine. And at this point of the season, it's it's sort of important, but it does sort of raise questions about, about the future. Um, so yeah, Darren, we've had 11 games now, so two different questions. Do you think we've seen enough of what you would expect of a a style change from Marsh? And uh, do you think that we'll see a bigger uptake over the summer? No, I don't don't really think I've seen enough evidence of a style from our consistent, consistently applied style from Marsh. I've seen, like you say, John, there have been pockets of time when we've played something which resembles that kind of RB style. There have been other times when it's resembled more Bielsa's football. And then there's been, honestly, more of the time when to me it's resembled nothing at all, really, and just a sort of a sort of mess um, or that he's had to make specific or he's made I'm going to say had to make but where he's made specific tactical decisions in games which are, which are nothing to do with either his style or Bielsa's style i.e. let's play sit deep let's play attritionally let's try and just hang on and see if we can stay close to the opponent um, so I don't think we've seen any I don't think we've seen any real kind of evidence of that uh, of of like a, a a clear tactical identity or or a like I don't go into our games going oh I know what I'm going to see here or or, ex, or having clear expectations about what I'm going to see um and whether we see an uptake in the summer depends on a number of things I think it depends on whether he's still here and whether and that's probably related to what division we're in next season I think it's also very clear that um that in terms of properly implementing a style that there's going to have to be a real churn in terms of the squad so if we are going to move to this style then we need to make really clear firm decisions that we're going to build a squad that suits the kind of football that he wants to play and that means moving out our wingers and bringing in players who've got more central attacking ability and who probably who are brought in more for their pressing ability than anything else and maybe their ability to to make moments in tight spaces um so I'm not at the stage where I can say with any certainty, yeah, we're definitely going to see a, an improvement next year. We're definitely going to see a better tactical plan. Um, 
because I just don't don't think I've seen enough evidence on the pitch yet of, of what we're looking for. But certainly I hope that if he's around that he's able to implement something that he wants because if not, it's not going to be a long season for him next year. He'll be, you know, like this can't go on indefinitely where we just keep fudging things and saying, oh, he's new in the job or the pressure's too much or yeah, and, and kind of keep making excuses. Eventually he's going to have to deliver what he promises on the pitch. I definitely agree that I haven't seen enough of a style change since he's come in. Um, I just, I can't see much of a style but yeah Darren's touched on most of that already um, and I kind of like echo the stuff on the, the summer like my worry is that he, well, his previous clubs are all Red Bull clubs and he hasn't really had to implement anything since when he got there um, so I don't have there, is, there isn't any evidence that he can do it I mean maybe I'm being hyper like he's not he's, he's never had to do it at any club and I would have thought that with, he's had like two at least two periods of two weeks off between games and you never see sort of any big jump, and I know that's because he's taken the he's taken the idea that it's better to give the players rest and give them sort of relieve the pressure by giving them time off, which again is 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 fine. But I would also like to see some of that time used to in, implement a style. Um, it's also that he doesn't at the moment because he's kind of doing like a mishmash of styles. He doesn't seem to, to one have confidence in his style or. So when when it comes to next October, say if you're still here, we're still in the Premier League, and the style's not working because we've not implemented it well over the summer. Are the players going to do the same thing and go? Actually, we want to do this, and you let us do this at the end of last season. Why can't we do it now? So I'd, I I'm struggling to have confidence in him over the summer, but I am still going to give him the benefit of the doubt until I see some sort of results in August September time if if we get there. Yeah. So Jesse Marsh starts off as the coach of Montreal Impact. So that's a non-Red Bull club, but he's only there for a very short time. He joins uh, New York Red Bulls in 2015 and the Red Bull take over New York Red Bulls in 2006. So you've already got like nine years between them purchasing the club and and him joining. Obviously the same is true of of Salzburg. Um, and by the time Jesse Marsh turns up there, they've they've won something like seven um, league titles in the Australian Bundesliga in a row. Um, and then he obviously goes to um, RB Leipzig and, and has that disaster first half of this season. And it, I, I guess the, the thing for me is that, you know, that part of the reason why the Red Bull franchise works is because it's designed to sort of promote and demote as people hit their, their level, really. Um, and you do get this sort of conveyor belt of managers going through. Um, but like take for the example of, of Salzburg are, are great. Like literally they bring in managers all the time and they hit the ground running and, and go with that. Um, they, they implement the system that's already there. And I suppose the thing with Jesse Marsh is that being a good motivator is, is, is going to be helpful in that sort of club because you're doing the same sort of thing, um, as you've, as you've always done. So you want someone who's going to be a good motivator there. And I suppose the big question for me is like, what is required of a manager to, to actually implement a style to start with? Um, and he was brought into RB Leipzig because they just had Julian Nagelsmann as their coach and he'd moved away from the, the Red Bull ideals in terms of football tactics. And uh, they wanted to return to those ideals, so they brought in Jesse Marsh and obviously that didn't go uh, particularly well. Um, and then they've brought in Tom Dominico Tedesco now to to try and... I, I don't even really know what the idea is short of bringing a good manager who will actually get them results and get them you know, finishing in the Champions League, which he just about managed to do. So I do think that there are valid concerns about about that. And I suppose my my big issue is that this is a big, big summer for, for Leeds. Um, I've already mentioned that, you know, we're going to have a lot of outgoings. We're going to have outgoings that if we stay in the Premier League are going to bring in a lot of money. And um, I just don't think it's as simple as people seem to think that, well, you know, Jesse Marsh brings in a few players who suit the style and suddenly Leeds are playing great, um, you know, Red Bull football. Um, and yeah, my big, I suppose my big concern is, is that if we keep him, we make those changes, we pile a lot of money into it. We may be in a situation similar to someone like uh, Dortmund, who seem to constantly be reinventing themselves, bringing in new managers who then have to deal with the squads of a previous manager who is stylistically very different to them. Um, now, it may be the case that, you know, Victor Orta will say, well, we'll bring in another high-pressing coach. Um, and so hopefully that will, you know, mitigate the, the squad that we've got. But it does seem as though we're going to start 
we're likely to enter this sort of period where we're we're sort of flying by the seat of our pants a little bit and we're going to end up with squads for the wrong managers as we replace managers and 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 rebuild squads so i suppose that's my my real concern about the um the the future but that is a pessimistic reading of the future um and it certainly shouldn't be read too much into and you are right tom that you know maybe after a summer um you know, this will be a lot better and we'll start seeing the sorts of things that we, we want to see um, from a from a Jesse Marsh team. But I suppose, again, my concern is is that, you know, how long's Ralph Hasenhuttle had? Um, Ralph Hasenhuttle is probably a manager that I would consider better than Jesse Marsh. Um, and he certainly, you know, he certainly evolved his style as well in the Premier League. Um, and I suppose the big question is, would you want to have Jesse Marsh in three years' time doing the same sort of thing that, that Hasenhuttle is doing with Southampton, which, again, is an open question. And I'm sure there are people who enjoy uh, what it is that, that Hasenhutl is doing. But again, I suppose my biases are towards decent possession football where you can um, slowly improve the te- technical quality of your players to a point where, you know, you're a solid mid-table side. And I think the, the big risk of playing that sort of high intensity pressing that we do is that if you do have these, you exacerbate these three season cycles you you have to be so on top of it with your recruitment and if you're not then we'll just have a season like we've had this season where where everything's fallen to pieces and then you're rebuilding again from the start but anyway that was a bit of a sermon from me so if i don't know if either of you two have any thoughts to conclude the sermon but um just thank you i really enjoyed that that was very very interesting. <laughs> uh, no I, the only thing i would say is that that you know your concern seems to be about this idea that when you when you churn the squad, you have to reinvent the churn the manager. You have to reinvent the squad constantly, right? And and you're saying that that's a risk and one that we might see somewhere down the line. We're actually already seeing it. We've actually already brought in a coach that's got very very little in common with his predecessor, except pressing. Um, so I, I don't think it's an unfounded concern. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. enough of my questions what did you guys want to talk about we'll kick off with you tom joe Geldart. there's obviously one very specific moment that i want to talk about but i also think that he um it's he's quite interesting to talk about his game yesterday because he did look good as he always does in in most games um in parts but i also felt like he kind of struggled to get into it a bit um so just wonder what your guys you guys are thinking about that. that that's what we've seen every single time with him really isn't it that there will be moments when he looks absolutely outstanding <laughs> and whether that's you know the uh the run for the and the finish for the goal at Chelsea whether it's the the you know the leap and the flick on for um Rafinha against Norwich whether it's some of the work that he did in build up against Spurs whether it's the you know the couple of moments that he had yesterday that he, he will consistently provide moments where you think oh god this player's super exciting he's going to create loads for us and and all that kind of thing but then as you say there are significant periods of the game when he's in in every game that he's played in for any significant period of time where he's absolutely on the periphery of it and and I suppose I suppose for me I don't expect that kind of high level super exciting moment all the time because that's not a reasonable expectation but what I would like to see in terms of his development is is him um, being able to help with like the continuity of the of the game and 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 the and being more involved as a player who can support the general tactical ideas of the team rather than just being one that that where 
you know, one time in seven you get the ball to him and he's going to do something exciting and maybe create something. So I think I think there are a couple of things within that, though, one of which is that I don't think that we've really played him in a position that particularly suits him. I don't think it particularly suits playing the lone striker, especially not in this system. Um, and, you know, I, th- I and and also, I guess, having a team, when you bring a young player into a team, you want to have them come in where there's 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 a structure that works around them so you can put them into it and, and have them thrive. But also, like, um, yeah, not have, have them under quite so much pressure as, as he is at the moment. He really has to deliver at the moment. So I'm prepared to kind of just now let him off with those moments because moments are all we've got as a team and and because he when he's on the pitch he usually provides at least one then I, I think I think it's 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 a, it's a good place good place for us to be for right now the the assist yesterday he worked an absolute miracle in that moment and yeah the defending was shoddy and shonky and yada 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 but to have that that level of composure that level of awareness the, the idea to try it and the ability to pull it off in the Premier League is, is something pretty special. So, you know, gr- a great moment. I just wish he'd been able to do a bit more in the game generally. Yeah, I totally agree with Darren. One of the, the best people on Twitter, I think, for talent ID and reading players is Ethan Online. Um, I'm sure you guys have, have come across him on Twitter. Um, and I have a lot of time for his takes. And one of the things he mentioned, actually, in a group chat I was in with him yesterday was that that obviously you get those moments with Gelhart, but the issue is is that the team has to carry him for the rest of the time to a certain extent. And I think his his question was like, at what point do you have to make that decision between are you going to carry a player who for the most part in a game is going to be superfluous if he can pull those moments out? And I think that's a, a valid question. And I think it's something that you have to, that you have to think about. Um, and I, I, I would I probably qualify that by saying the style of football that we're playing just really doesn't suit him. So I think there are teams where Joe Gellhart would go to and he would be fantastic. Um, I think if you play Joe Gellhart in one of the outside positions on a front three, um, so any team that plays a, a sort of a fairly flexible, fluid front three, where he's not expected to do too much, um, you know, defensive work other than getting back into a in, maybe into a maybe fairly solid mid block, I think he would really fit into a team like that. I'm just trying to think of one off the top of my head, but someone like Wolves who play three four three, if you stuck him in one of the, in fact for Brighton, like even if he's playing in one of those narrower front three roles, I think he would probably um, he would probably suit that where a lot of the time you're expecting them not to win balls in the air and do hold up play and stuff but you're you're going to get the ball to your feet on the floor you're going to have space you're going to have runners going past you giving you options to pass you have space to run into I think you would really thrive in that sort of uh, situation so it's it's a tricky one with Joe Gelhart um, because you are always caught between like the collective and the individual and you know the, the there's there's always going to be that sense in which the better individual players will get you points and get you, you know, through games. And we've seen that so much this season. We've seen it with Rafinha. We've seen it with Patrick Bamford. We've seen it with Gelhar. Um, and at the moment, that's sort of what we're running on. But the ideal should be that you actually keep the best players and play a system that works for them as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one with, with Gelhar. And I suppose again, with, with so much uncertainty really about what the future of Leeds United is going to be like tactically, it's, it's always a tricky one to see whether or not someone will come in for him and will end up letting him go anyway naturally, or whether or not we can actually get to a point where we're playing him in a system that actually works and we're, we're not just carrying him through games in that sense. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that people talk about, um, people have been like saying about the, if we are in the championship next year and that, oh, Gelda will tear it up. And it's not necessarily a given for the, for the reasons you guys have mentioned. And he, I think he's done well this year because he's, we haven't really seen a clear system all season, have we? Um, and it's a system, what, what we have seen in the system doesn't really suit him and he's still providing those moments. So there, I can sort of give him a bit of a, a let off and sort of dro- drop it in and out of games. And I think you see that with younger players as well. Um, but, yeah, it was just, it is just those moments that you do want it for. And that, that moment yesterday, like you say, down, just to have the, just at that time of the game, at the, at that time of the season when we really need it, he had the, just had the ability to do it. So it's, it's a, along the similar lines of the Rodrigo debate that we had loads where it's like, well, Rodrigo's a really, really good player, but he, he broke our team. And now Geldar doesn't break our team, but he, we have to account for him in a, in a bit of a, a negative sense. So, 
I, I would like it if we did eventually move to a system where we can get the best out of him because it's, it would definitely be worth doing that. Um, but at the moment, he's just bringing those moments and it's, it's enough what we need at the moment. It's just, it's just interesting long term to see where we kind of go with him. Yeah, and I know Josh has been saying that his best usage is probably as a sub, and I think that's probably true. The issue that we have at the moment is we just don't have any sort of depth of squad that we can't just play him, and so you end up with these sorts of situations where he's playing in a in an ideal scenario. But um, yeah, I got dug out by someone on Twitter for saying that 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 Gelhart was being maybe a little bit overhyped this season, and I, I want to stress that like I think that the the hype about Gelhart is definitely justified people should be hyped about him because he's one of the most exciting players that we have but I think that you need to just again you need to temper those those, that hype with with sort of an understanding of how it works tactically as well um so I'm I'm glad we've had this conversation because um yeah I thought I felt I feel as though it was productive anyway Darren what did you want to talk about so it's been a while since we've had a who was to blame for this goal type conversation (laughs) so I thought I thought I'd bring it up because um it was I was really interested to see probably principally three different players take flack for the Brighton goal. So Rodrigo for giving the ball away was blamed for the goal. Um, Phillips for not moving across and crossing, killing the position was blamed for the goal. And Urente was blamed for the goal for doing his... For actually being at fault for the goal, right? <laughs> for, doing, for doing his... for doing his. Have you ever seen that clip of... What was that guy from EastEnders, Todd Carty, when he did the Dancing on Ice show and there's a brilliant <laughs> clip of him just sort of falling all over the place and... and have you seen it, Tom? Yeah, you know I've seen it. I know what you're you? talking it's about. Wonderful. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it and see how much it reminds you of Diego Llorente in that moment. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting because obviously, for me, Llorente is at fault there, but... I'm I'm just interested in where you think this idea that Rodrigo or Phillips were at fault might have come from, uh, and 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 how and and what you would expect from those players in those moments. So I'm going to come to you first, Tom. Sorry, John, I took over hosting them for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's easy to go to Rodrigo because he lost the ball. But if a player loses the ball that far up the pitch and the goal gets conceded, it's I don't really see how it's completely their fault. It maybe is a little bit of fault for not doing a pass, but that's it's very harsh. Didn't we had a Tyler Roberts situation like this earlier in the season, and everyone said it was Tyler Roberts's fault. Whose fault was it in that it, game? <laughs> 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 uh, I believe it was a Newcastle game. Yeah, uh, and Tyler Roberts lost the ball, and uh, a certain defender, defended. Javier Manquillo. <laughs> Javier Manquillo. Javier Manquillo. To be fair, that yeah, that elite player did did absolutely. Um, do Diego Urente gave away a free kick and the rest as we say it was Melio's fault John well, Melio Mel- was also a bit <laughs> yeah, of fault conceding the goal I suppose Tom it's interesting that isn't it because it raises a question for me what do we want our creative players to do do we want them to try creative things yeah no I, I, I was annoyed at Rodrigo for not getting the pass away I don't think it's Rodrigo's fault I think the, I'm going to give us Urente absolutely balls it up and should have done better but and I don't understand the, how the Phillips is getting blamed for this at all I think there's just a massive hole in the midfield and because Phillips is a defensive midfielder and all the others are attacking midfielders Phillips is expected to cover the entire centre of the pitch whereas like there was no one running back there was no one in that space Um even like Cooper had to push up to sort of try and st- st- stem the attack and it just that left the space as well so like I'm surprised people hadn't blamed Cooper in that situation because people had to do that as well Um I, th- I would say Urente is mostly at fault, but I think it's a bit of a collective mess up from the team. John, why does Rodrigo delay the pass so long? To be honest, I haven't rewatched okay. his pass. I mean, f- when I watched it live, I sort of thought that it. W- I mean, it was poor, right? It was. Yeah. It, it felt like he had a lot of space to make that pass, and he should be making that pass. Um, and he's definitely been guilty of misplacing passes and taking horrendous first touches um so yeah i have no problem talking about that being a mistake the question is when you start like clocking up all the causalities and all of the blame i mean christian theologians talk about sins of omission and sins of commission so sins of commission are like when you do bad things and then sins of omission are where you do bad things by not doing anything right so um 
you could argue that there's you know there's a lot it, it's a lot easier to blame people when you see them doing things um so those those would be sins of commission where where you know someone robs a bank you're like that's terrible but um sins of omission are a little bit harder so th- i'm sure there's plenty of players on that pitch who probably should have done things differently um certainly the structure was abysmal and um eve basuma just wandered through i mean it was you know if that if that had happened under bielsa's tenure we would have been hearing huge complaints about the man marking system for example um which isn't to say that I'm trying to justify the man marking system so much as like bad defending can happen in zonal structures as well. And you don't blame zonal structures for, for that goal, but it was hugely at fault. Um, again, yeah, Phillips, I mean, Phillips, maybe Phillips should have been across a little bit more, but where's Mateus click as well. So, um, you, you can argue the toss on that, but yeah, it's, it's Diego Llorente's fault. Like no one, no one is disagreeing with that, surely. Oh, no, I don't think so. How does he end up on his ass so much? <laughs> like, he ends up on his ass and then gets up Every and then he's back on his ass. Like, it's only about a second had passed. Like, how does how does one person do that? I don't know. There is a video of uh, Ruben Diaz, the, um, the Man City defender, because um, he's a similar sort of player. Just every time City concede a goal, he's on his ass every time. Um, I might make one for Diego Llorente. But yeah, it's just one of those situations where in that, in that scenario, you force the player wide, you hold them up, you don't go to ground. And, you know, if, if they manage to find someone else, then they manage to find someone else. But Llorente just seems to do everything wrong. He tries to clear the ball, misses it, um, and then dives in one way, misses it, and then, and then has the ball just dinked over him so yeah, it's what it's what you get with Urente. um he's he's an aggressive defender and there's times when people love it but when it goes very wrong it, it's just it's just horrendous it's just one of the rare situations where actually one of the massive mistakes he makes results in a goal and so um yeah people will will focus on it a little bit more and for those people listening to this who are thinking ah oh, but you're not you you don't, you know, you, you didn't say this when Pascal Strout was made to look silly by Danny Welbeck last season, uh, did you? And and the the answer is yes, we do remember that. What's your point? Um, should we should we move on? Sorry, John, I took over for a second again there. Right. Let's move on to listener questions. So again, lots of good listener questions. So thank you for that. Uh, questions from our friends at the Mighty White Pod, who said, "All around me were bollocking Furco." Furco, Furpo, for every attack Brighton had down that side, but I only thought one of them was actually his fault. He showed someone inside to make the through ball easier. Am I being contrarian or was Furpo all right yesterday? Who wants to talk about this? I thought he was all right. That's fine. Yeah, the, I actually, looking back, well, I was watching back earlier, um, and I didn't pay as much attention to this as I, as I should have done, so apologies, but I actually felt there was the times where the, the ball was get, sort of we were conceded chance in the left back area on the left side. It was for, felt like Cooper for me. Um, and I'm not a massive fan of digging out Cooper because he gets more abuse than he deserves. But I think like he was pushing up a lot and being very aggressive to sort of like help Furpo in those areas. And it just left a massive gap in behind. And like the, you saw loads of times where they, um, Brighton got to the byline in that area. Um, and then you had Uente moving across, Cock moving across, and it just was a whole collective mess. And I think it, it felt from Cooper being pushing up uh, that it was caused the problem that, rather than Furpo. Like um, like they say that there was one time where I felt Furpo was at, at fault, but mostly he was yeah he was all right. His, his attacking was I've never you don't really have a problem with his attacking usually like he he does some good moments. Um, in the first half the the left hand side as a whole wasn't really working well. I think the combination of um, Firpo, Harrison, and mainly Rodrigo on that side was just a bit of a shambles. Um, and it kind of got better in the second half, as we've talked about earlier, but not for, not for any sort of particular reason, apart from that we were a bit better attacking as a team. Um, but yeah, Firpo did all right. I can't, I haven't got much more to say than that. I don't think the gap between Firpo's all right performance and his bad ones is as big as people make out. I think that, that quite often he'll do decent things on the ball. Quite often he'll do a silly thing on the ball. Sometimes he'll do something which is reasonable defensively and other times he'll look like an absolute bomb scare reasonably and all of those things are true of yesterday's performance. Um, I, I think this, I agree with Tom that it was the structure that was at fault. For, for why Brighton managed to get in down that left-hand side so much. But because Firpo is the kind of the, the scapegoat de jure at the moment, he's going to be the one that gets called out 
for everything that happens down that side. Um, but it was it was more to do with either the whole team being sucked over to one side or that diagonal run by the forwards, which is actually where the goal came from. The um, Welbeck runs across Llorente and behind Cooper and gets in. Um, and, you know, it just... It, it it was it was definitely a strategy that Brighton were trying all the way through, and it came off for them in the goal that one time, and and um, close to goals on on other occasions. So I don't necessarily hold Furpo at fault. I thought he was fine. He got his booking. You know, he always has to get booked. I always bet on it. I always put a ten on it every game. Right, do you? Yeah. Wow, I bet you are. I bet you are. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it it was all right. I mean, I think there is a wider conversation to be had about Furpo in terms of what we expect from our fullbacks uh, next season and whether whether Furpo is the right person to carry that forward in Marsh's system. But I don't necessarily know that that's a conversation for now. He did fine yesterday. Yeah, I'm maybe going to disagree with you guys slightly. I I really don't like him positionally, and I think that a, a lot of the problems on the left yesterday were because other players were covering for things that he was doing and then being out of position. Um, so, yeah, I, d- I do think there's situations where Cooper has gone across, but I think it's because Furpo is, is a little bit um, unsure of where his positioning should be. Um, I There's a few clips, if you actually watch it, like you can see Furpo hesitating. I think that's the worst thing about him is that he sort of seems to get caught between positions and I think he has to either commit to one or the other. And to be honest with you, in those sorts of situations, I always just think commit to the deeper position because if you get if you get the positioning wrong, at least if you're deeper, you you have a chance of, of, of helping out. But um, I, I think Firpo is not a left back. I think he's a left wing back. I think under pressure in build-up, he can be pretty poor. So I thought he was a little bit uh, vulnerable yesterday in in Brighton's high press um and I also think that when he has space to run into and when he has space on the ball and time on the ball he's actually not a bad um uh, attacking player he can obviously go inside as well he's a decent header of the ball so I think that I, I think that on the balance of things he's like fine as you say I think that the issue for me is that the the, the gap between him being fine and not fine isn't to do with the game it's to do with what moment he's in in the game and so in a, in games when we're attacking more he looks fine and in games when we're defending more he's he terrifies me so um yeah it's a tricky one um so yeah I, I think yesterday he was largely fine um but I do think that there are issues there that just get exposed um and I, I don't think there's it, I don't think it comes as any surprise to me maybe I'm maybe I'm just being too biased here but it doesn't come as any surprise to me that the weaknesses that we had yesterday were coming down that uh, left hand side rather than the the right hand side um i i've disagreed with you guys so i don't i'll give you a chance to come back at me if you want i think it was a game in which he was required to do more kind of one-to-one defending than other games because we didn't have the the double pivot structure in place as much as as we have done in the past so he didn't have uh, didn't have the cover and maybe that's why maybe that's partly why he got unpicked a little bit as as well but um you know i I don't, like I said, I don't fundamentally disagree with you. He does positionally get caught out sometimes and is a bit indecisive. Um, but that that's not sort of news to us. We we sort of know that from the way that he's played earlier in the season. So, um, but yeah, I, it's an interesting one for the future for sure. It's funny because his weaknesses are very different to Alioski's. Like yeah. Alioski's is probably too committal and like has has a lack of ability which i don't think that junior necessarily has um so yeah it's 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 sort of weird to go from one scary player to another scary player but of a, an entirely different flavor but no doubt we'll talk about that more in the future but question two well, i've got two questions here so i'll put one to one of you and then one to the other of you they're both about pressing so our good pal adam michael finney uh with an interesting question so saying the is the issue with the high press partially that once the front four is beaten the team defensive recovery is too slow or is it that it's not yet coordinated is the plan to drop into a mid block and squeeze everything central We'll get numbers to low block and look to counter. I can't figure out the triggers. Um, this is something I tweeted about yesterday, actually, that I think that our high press now is is just like a more aggressive version of most mid-block presses. Um, and I think Premier League teams are so used to playing against those sorts of pressing structures that um, we're getting our high press just bypassed quite easily at the moment. Although I did notice that Brighton did 
actually hit over the high press quite a few times as well. They didn't often go from the goalkeeper into into a build-up phase, so there was that as well. But um, yeah, Darren, thoughts on that? I think partly the issue is the, the one that we identified in the Chelsea game in that, that, that the team still isn't compact front to back in those moments. So it, it does create and expose spaces. Um, the high press in, in and of itself is... is you know the 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 four players who principally form the high press being the the front three and the in the three and the one they will they will go as as everybody can see I'm, I'm not saying anyone anything that people don't know but they'll go into quite a flat line and try and press high and try and move across the pitch together um but then once we get once that structure is beaten it does feel to me like there like there are a lot of spaces to be exploited um and you know, sometimes it's in in the wider areas. Sometimes it's in it's in the gap between the the back four and and, and the rest of the team. Um, so it, yeah, it, it does feel to me like it isn't quite working consistently. And particularly that was the case in the first half yesterday. I thought Brighton were pretty untroubled by our press in a similar way to Chelsea. Um, that they they used width and um, and depth in in different parts of the the play to kind of try and unbalance our pressing. Yeah, I don't think any of the teams that we played, and that includes teams like. Even like Watford and Palace have just not been troubled by our high press, which I think is is problematic. And I think for me the issue is that we don't we're just not brave enough. You've got to push your back line right up. You've got to have your fullbacks pushing onto the onto the ball side when it goes through uh, onto the wide players there, and you've got to be ready to cover the ball into the channels as well. Um, and it's scary, but we the problem is is that we're just not aggressive enough, and it means that teams can get through us way too easily. Can I just want to add one thing on that is that um, the press at the moment, and this might be me being very scathing and probably maybe unfair. It just reminds me of like watching Man United press under Solskjaer that it's just, there isn't really anything more to it than run. And if there's a chance, run some more. And so like, that works. I, I was sat in the South Stand yesterday, so I got like, I was, and I was like pretty central, so I could sort of see, it was quite, quite nice to sort of see the press, pressing, um, pressing triggers. And it, it was almost like there weren't some, like it was more like if a player thought there was an individual moment where they could get the ball, they would run and try and get the ball. And Brighton were almost like saying, come and press us because we'll either play over you or we'll just play through you. So they they were quite happy for us to run at us because they knew that what, they could beat it easily and then it wouldn't have given them an even better opportunity. So it's it's just not a coordinated press. And when, when you go back to like the press of like the... the Bielsa, not this season's Bielsa's leads, but like the the seasons before, where even if the, the like a player was beaten, like the, the player didn't have an an easy option, the opposition player didn't have an easy option to sort of get a pass away. Whereas it feels now that oh, it doesn't take like much to play around our press and then get through and that have a, a a pretty sort of relatively straightforward threatening opportunity. I think goalkeepers are so much better now with their feet and I think because of that it, it almost becomes impossible to press the way that Marsh wants to press in the Premier League um, so in terms of what the plan is I think the idea is is that you force the, the team the opposition wide um, and when the ball goes to the fullback you you have one of the forward players pressing onto the ball near centre back to cut off that pass back uh, and then you have the, the wide player pressing onto the fullback and then theoretically everyone should fall into into a sort of man marking system behind them in that channel. So your your fullback pushes up onto the wide player. Um, your your uh, double pivot on that side should push across to the central midfielder. Your and your and your um, back line should push up on the striker. And the idea is is that you force them long and turn the ball over and, and win it back, or you counter press them and then win the ball back and and then probably recycle it backwards to try and get it through the central space. Um, but the problem is is that teams can just try and build through the press. If they can't do that, they can just play it to the the goalkeeper straight away and the goalkeeper plays it down the other side and then suddenly there's a huge amount of space on the other side and we've just seen that over and over again. We're barely ever actually causing any problems from the opposition's build-up. Um, obviously, that's not the only way that we press and the, the second question is is about the, the other form of pressing, so I'll move on to that now. But uh, good pal Dan Holdsworth says, this could be post-game delirium, but I definitely thought there were moments where Leeds counter-pressed and converged on the ball quite well in the second half. Did it happen even if just for a few periods in the half, Tom? I'd say yeah, uh, that there were moments, but I think it's just the fact that we were kind of lumping it up there and we were committing more more men forward. And we've we've kind of said about the counter press that you need to have the players up there to be able to counter press. And for a lot most of time, Marsh's time at Leeds, we haven't had that. Uh, but I think it, it wasn't through design. I think it was more through that we had those moments where we did have players there to do it, and we had because of the way we we changed to just sort of playing it long. We we kind of had sort of opportunities to get it right in that way that we didn't in the first half so 
yeah, but I don't. I just don't think it was a designed one. I think it was still individuals. Yeah, I think there were a few moment, a few moments. I don't think there were a few periods where it worked well. Um, I think there were a few individual moments where we were able to, where we were able to get plenty of players around the ball and around the man and put them under pressure um, in 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 counter pressing moments. But again, it probably wasn't consistent enough. It probably wasn't um, as structured as you'd want it to be. Um, but I think there were, there were definitely occasions in the second half where we put them under pressure in that way. And uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't want to say otherwise. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that actually at times yesterday, as I've already said, Brighton were in danger of maybe holding onto the ball a little too long. And I think that when you do that against Leeds, that will cause problems um, for yourself. And I think the difference between Brighton and the teams that we've just played is that when you're playing against teams like Chelsea, Manchester City, Arsenal, they're moving the ball so quickly all the time. They're constantly destabilising this structure. Uh, and it means that I think part of the problem is that we just couldn't coordinate well enough to, to counter-press those sorts of teams. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with Dan. There was there was a few moments where we counter-pressed well, but I thought it was mainly because Brighton didn't move the ball well enough and so it just allowed us to do that a little bit more easily. Um, final question uh, from 1-2-3 Leeds Go. Nice, simple. Rodrigo discussed. Darren? What, again? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've talked about Rodrigo on this podcast over the last two seasons more than any other player. It's 2021 again somehow. How has it happened? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's different things that we're talking yeah, about no, it is, nowadays, it is, isn't it? Yeah, like, of course it is. We're not talking about man marking breaking down. No, we're talking no. about him not being able to control the ball and not being able to pass the ball. <laughs> uh, is it, you know, the Rodrigo conundrum is the same as it's always been in that he doesn't consistently enough do the things that you want him to do where he'll... Like, he's a bit, you know, it's similar to... Gelhart in a way, but for different reasons. Where where he's, he doesn't consistently enough influence games. Where he doesn't um, he doesn't support us to create chances often enough. He's a bit of a weakness off the ball. But then there's no one else in our squad who can find that pass that that puts Rafinha in for that big chance. Like genuinely, no one else in the squad can play that pass um, and and play it to perfection like that. So be- because of and and I do keep saying this on this episode of the podcast, particularly because we are such a moments team. Then you need the players in the team who can provide those moments, and and he's he's one of them. So, um, you know wh- whether whether he is still around next season, whether he's worthy of being our record signing, whether you know all the all the questions that constantly come up about Rodrigo, which are kind of narrative uh, uh, by the by. The fact is, right now at this moment in time, we need the players who can bring the moments like that one, and and he's one of them. Yeah, I'm presuming you agree, Tom. Yeah, completely agree. It's just um, we kind of touched on it earlier, but he's very good in transition, and we were able to see him in those transitional moments in the second half, and we didn't in the first half, and I think that was kind of the difference between people's opinions in of of him during this game. Well, I've run things over a little bit, so apologies, guys. Uh, but thank you for staying with me, and hopefully the listeners are still here as well. But I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about the game. Plenty of interesting conversations had by all. We obviously have a game against Brentford at the end of the week, which is going to be the final game of the season. Obviously, everything to play for, uh, and yeah, should be an exciting day. We will be talking to our good pal David Anderson of uh, Bees Tactical, and having a full preview episode later in the week so make sure you check that out on patreon that's www.patreon.com forward slash all stats aren't we but this does bring us to the end of the podcast all there is for me to do is say thank you darren cheers and thanks tom thank you very much and we'll see you all at the end of the week Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 